It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Thursday, January 11th. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. Two people are confirmed dead following a boating mishap near Sitka Tuesday night. Three others survived. A helicopter from Air Station Sitka responded to the scene of an overturned vessel at 5.15 p.m. on Tuesday near Chichigoff Island, about 25 miles north of Sitka. Three people were safely recovered from the water by about 5.50 p.m. The Coast Guard cutters Douglas Denman and Kukui, along with an HC-130 aircraft from Air Station Kodiak, also responded Tuesday night, tracked the vessel's drift, and searched the surrounding area for two people who remained missing. A dive rescue team from the Sitka Fire Department, along with a state trooper, arrived early Wednesday afternoon and deployed an unmanned underwater drone. The bodies of two deceased victims were found in the cabin of the vessel. Recovery operations will begin once an on-scene conditions improve. Initial weather in the area was reported at 8 to 10 knot winds with 9-foot seas and below freezing temperatures. The three people recovered from the water were flown to awaiting emergency medical personnel at the Sitka airport. KCAW will update this story as it unfolds. You can visit our website, kcaw.org, for the latest information. People in southeast should brace for high winds and extreme low temperatures through the end of the week. The National Weather Service issued a special weather statement for Sitka, warning of extreme low temperatures and wind chills across the region. Temperatures will continue to get colder through at least Friday morning. Lows will be in the teens for most of the panhandle. At higher elevations along the Haines and Klondike highways, temperatures could reach 10 degrees below zero. The strong winds will push temperatures even lower, especially in downtown Juneau and Douglas, where wind speeds could reach 25 to 30 miles per hour with gusts of up to 60 miles per hour. Boats or loose property that might blow around should be secured. And residents should take precaution to prevent pipes from freezing or bursting. All-purpose vehicles have been street legal in Sitka for almost two years. Now riders want some of the initial restrictions rolled back, and they're getting support at the assembly table. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. All-purpose vehicles, like ATVs and utility vehicles, were legalized for street use in Alaska in 2022. Some communities opted out of the new regulations, but eventually Sitka adopted the new state law after adding a few more local restrictions, like quiet hours and a local permitting process. Now, APV riders want some of those additional restrictions rolled back. Specifically, they want Sitka to make manufactured two-seat all-terrain vehicles street legal, and they want more exceptions for the city-mandated quiet hours. From midnight to 5 a.m., APVs generally aren't allowed on Sitka streets. Mike Finn is the president of the Sitka All-Terrain Riders Group. You can ride a bicycle, skateboard, motorcycle, car, truck, or whatever with zero curfews, but not if you're on an APV. Even without these two regulations, we are the highest regulated riding group in Sitka. Other communities and state law do not have these requirements of APV riders. And so tonight I'm asking each of you to vote in favor of this proposal to give APV riders a little more freedom on the Sitka roads. Several other Sitkins voiced support for the code update, including Sheridan Bacon. Uh, I have personally seen how uh, much of a positive impact that this has had for our community, and I think it's really important for our sidewalks to be plowed in the snow time, and they've done a really great job of that, and it helps to keep our elderly community and our walkers and our bikers all safe on their route to and from. Assemblymember J.J. Carlson said she'd support the ordinance, especially since they weren't going to repeal the quiet hours, just add another exception or two. It's not for just open hours for recreation at 2 a.m., 
reading here, or when traveling to and from the airport or ferry terminal for departures and arrivals without detours or stops, or when snow plowing. And I think that's an important distinction um, that it's not just uh, people um, going up and down the road for fun um, after midnight and, and before 5 a.m. And because of that careful language, um, I'm very much in favor of this. Assemblymember Tor Christensen, who sponsored the original proposal to make APVs street legal in Sitka, said the changes were a reasonable evolution of the ordinance. I don't think we're going to have a uh, bunch of people going out there at 2 o'clock in the morning, so um, I don't have a problem with this. While there wasn't any pushback at the assembly table, sponsor Chris Yastad said that the ordinance was introduced at the Police and Fire Commission meeting first, but it failed to garner enough support. Yestad said the sticking point was the allowance of a two-seater ATV, but most commissioners at the meeting were supportive of trimming back the curfew restrictions. Ultimately, the Assembly unanimously approved the updated code for APVs in Sitka. It will come before the group again for a final reading on January 23rd. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Amid prolonged salmon crises in western Alaska, calls have grown for tribes to have a greater say in the way fisheries are managed. As KYUK's Evan Erickson reports, many say the recent appointment of three Alaska Native members to the panel tasked with advising the top regional federal fisheries council could be a step in the right direction. A recent press release from the Arctic Yukon Kuskokwim Tribal Consortium, representing 98 tribes directly impacted by salmon crashes in western Alaska rivers, said it was encouraging to see more Alaska Native faces than ever before on the North Pacific Management Council's advisory panel. But it also called out the council for having a, quote, voting majority with an economic interest in the trawl fleet and a total lack of Alaska Native representation on the council itself. It's so critical. It's something that we've been fighting for and asking for for many years. That's Eva Don Burke, who was recently appointed to a three-year term on the advisory panel to its first-ever designated Alaska Native seat. Because I sit on at least uh, four Alaska Native advisory councils for other projects or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I'm an advisor or whatever, but I don't have decision-making power. Burke is Danae Athabaskan from Nanana and Manly Hot Springs and currently holds advisory positions with both the Alaska Department of Fish and Game and the Federal Subsistence Board. She has also spearheaded multiple educational projects in her region aimed at preserving traditional knowledge and ensuring food security. It kind of was naturally like this is the next thing to kind of bring all those um, perspectives together. The first appointee to the tribal seat now occupied by Burke was Shawan Jackson-Gamble, who is Clinkett and Haida from Cake. He resigned the seat just months after being selected amid sexual assault charges stemming from a 2019 incident in Washington state. Not all of the current Alaska Native members of the advisory panel are fresh faces. Melissa Johnson has served on the panel since 2020 and was reappointed for a three-year term in December. She is a Nupiak and a member of the Nome Eskimo community and was passed over by Governor Mike Dunleavy for a voting seat on the 11-member council in 2023. The third Alaska Native appointee is newcomer Tiffany Andrew, assigned a one-year term. She is a Yupik tribal member of the Lower Yukon River Village of Alukanuk and handles government affairs for the Yukon Delta Fisheries Development Association, a nonprofit corporation with a vested interest in the Bering Sea Pollock fishery. This is thanks to a long-standing federal community development quota, or CDQ, program aimed at boosting the economic and social prospects of Western Alaska communities. The program allocates a percentage of the allowable commercial catch of various federally managed fisheries to nonprofit corporations like Andrew's. According to her resume, Andrew is a lifelong subsistence harvester. 
growing up fishing for salmon on a river that in recent years has been nearly completely closed to salmon fishing. But she also represents a CDQ group with proven results stimulating the region's economy, largely thanks to its stake in a Pollock fishery accused of fueling the salmon crisis. She says that bringing together different points of view is critical. There's too much subsistence needs not being met and CDQ issues going on as well that um, we all need to see from all perspectives. For now, there is no guarantee that having more perspectives will translate into a greater voice for Alaska Natives in federal fisheries management, but achieving a greater voice on the advisory panel could ultimately prove a step in the right direction. In Bethel, I'm Evan Erickson. A new bill that aims to address backlogged maintenance projects at the University of Alaska will be up for consideration as lawmakers return to the Capitol next Tuesday. The bill would set aside some $35 million this year to address some of the biggest priorities in the roughly $1.5 billion backlog. The university system's chief financial officer, Luke Fulp, says catching up on deferred maintenance has been the top capital priority for UA's governing Board of Regents for more than two decades. So this legislation is is our plan to address that and not just address it with one-time funding, uh, but to look at a way that we can engage in in long-term planning around meeting the maintenance needs of our facilities and making sure that we're avoiding critical failures and costly repairs. He says it's a new approach for the university system. Instead of asking the legislature to fund a specific slate of projects each year, the bill would lay out a six-year list of maintenance and modernization projects. In the past three years, Fulp says UA has received roughly $15 million a year, despite $60 to $70 million in annual requests. Governor Mike Dunleavy has issued line-item vetoes on a number of university maintenance projects, including roughly $35 million last year that would have paid for campus upgrades around the state. In 2019, during Dunleavy's first term in office, he cut some $130 million in university funding. Fulp says the UA system represents 40 percent of the state's capital infrastructure and says the bill would protect the state's investment. Fairbanks Republican Representative Will Stapp, the bill's sponsor in the House, says it's a way to get ahead of crises before they happen. Though the bill contains language saying the legislature intends to add $35 million to the fund each year, the final yearly contribution could still be up to the House, Senate, and Governor. But Stapp, a member of the House Majority Caucus, says he's open to discussing other methods to ensure long-term funding stability with his colleagues in Juneau. UA's head of state relations says university officials have spoken with the Senate leaders and staff about a possible companion bill. He says they've also raised the principles of the bill with Dunleavy's office and heard, quote, no known objections. The governor's communication director said in an email that the governor does not take a position on pending bills, noting they can change significantly during the legislative process. Lawmakers head to the Capitol for the second session of the 33rd Alaska Legislature on January 16th. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.